Let's seek the Lord's help as we return to his word once again this evening in the 63rd chapter of the book of the prophet Isaiah. And our focus especially this evening is in verse 9, Isaiah chapter 63 and in verse 9. In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them. And he bare them and carried them all the days of old. Especially the uh, earlier part of the verse. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. A few words by way of preface and then a a brief introduction as we uh, uh, take a look at this part of Isaiah's prophecy. Uh, We are in the presence of God. Uh, That's what our verse tells us, uh, that the Lord is very much with and in his people. God is uh, transcendent, that is, he he is above uh, our highest reach. Uh, He is so high and infinite, and yet he is also imminent, uh, which means that he uh, penetrates everything. And our God is absolutely everywhere. Uh, There is nothing greater than our God. And uh, the world is so unaware and ignorant of him. And yet God is great. You know, there's a beautiful psalm by David uh, which expresses uh, the everywhere-ness of God. Uh, Psalm 139. And David is brought to taste the comfort of the fact that God was in control of everything. It was when in his young life he was being hunted down like a wild animal on the mountains of Judah by the madness of King Saul, a a, a mad genius out to completely annihilate him. And you can imagine the tensions uh, and the the awful uh, uh, stress uh, that David was under. Just imagine for a moment being hunted down for your life. Uh, and how, how wearing this process would be, and how in the end that the tensions involved would, uh, as it were, threaten to crack you completely. Uh, and in spite of David's alertness, uh, inevitably, in the end, he loses himself, he falls asleep, because you've got that lovely touch in that great psalm that when David says, when I awake, I am still with thee. The Lord is there. though, you know, I might feel to be so much a prey to my hateful enemy, yet God is far greater than my enemy. And my God is all around me and all about me. Then can I be afraid? Well, as we turn to this text, uh, the great uh, Isaianic scholar, uh, Professor E.J. Young, states that this is one of the most remarkable verses in the prophecy. There are some great verses in Isaiah, tremendous, memorable words, and yet here uh, the the wise man says, here is one of the most remarkable verses in the prophecy. First of all, a few words then by way of introduction before we uh, attend to our brief agenda here tonight. Uh, The main burden of the whole second half of Isaiah opens with the note of chapter 40 and verse 1. Uh, there, are, there are two distinct parts to the prophecy of Isaiah. 
Uh, we're not being heretical. We're not saying there are two Isaiahs, like the liberals say. But nevertheless, there are two distinct parts of the prophecy. Uh, and the second part is especially addressed uh, to the people who would be living uh, in the captivity and after, immediately after that time, when they would be specially, uh, you know, vulnerable and a prey to so many fears and, and, and so many difficulties. And the word of God is designed to strengthen them. Chapter 40, verse 1, is the opening salvo, as it were, to the rest of the prophecy. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. That doesn't mean rock them to sleep and cost them like babies. But strengthen them. Uh, we are to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. God's word is designed not simply to correct, not simply to rebuke, but also to strengthen and hearten the people of God. And that's the general tenor of the second part of this prophecy in its entirety. It is to strengthen and comfort and inspire uh, the perseverance of God's believing people. And of course, with that in view, of course, you have in the second half of Isaiah, you have those tremendous servant songs, as they're called, which are remarkable poems in the midst of Isaiah's poetry that express intimately the exercises of the Messiah who would live 800 years later upon earth in the most intimate and precise way. We discover the Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of his people way back then in Isaiah's day. And to add proof to this, of course, you've got the well-known story of um, uh, in the Acts of the Apostles is um, Philip, and uh, Philip is having a great time preaching. He's in Samaria, and it's a time of great in-gathering of souls. Uh, and he's having a tremendous harvest to his ministry. He's surrounded by hundreds and hundreds of people seeking after God. We read there was great joy in that city. Uh, it was a day of God's power. Wonderful power. And then the Lord suddenly says to Philip, Arise and go toward the south, which is desert. And you can imagine Philip saying, Why? Why? Well, we're having a great time here. We're having a, a, a wonderful time of, a, 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 of gospel success. And you're telling me to go into the desert? Lord, there's nobody there. There's nobody lives there. But of course, he's obedient to the heavenly vision. So he goes to the desert. And we can imagine him there, can't we, standing there. And it's all dead quiet. And he, there's nothing right up to the horizon. Uh, blue sky above and yellow sand underneath. And he stands there. There's nothing there. But then, after a little while, he sees a cloud of dust in the distance. And that cloud of dust grows bigger and bigger. And then eventually he hears the sound of wagon wheels rolling, coming nearer and nearer. And he, and he realizes it's a very important chariot. It, it, it's not some old horse and cart. It's something, 
it's something so impressive because it belongs uh, to a great ambassador uh, from Ethiopia, a man really high up in the government of the empire of Ethiopia. <laughs> Most of you know what I'm talking about now, don't you? Here is the Ethiopian eunuch. And, and what does Philip see when, when the Lord says, go and join yourself to the chariot? It's big enough, isn't it? You know, you can climb up and, and be by the side of this man. And this man has got this great big scroll open on his lap. And Philip hears the word of God being read because people didn't read silently in those days. They read aloud if they're reading a book. And listen to what he's hearing. He's hearing the 53rd what we call the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. And I think you know, you're roughly familiar with that chapter, if not very conversant with it. Who hath believed our report? And whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Here's somebody who is suffering the sins. In his own body, he's suffering the sins and the curse and the guilt of the people of God. Well, the, the, the eunuch, of course, he, 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 yes, he's a God-fearing man. He's been up to Jerusalem to worship. And so he knows certain things. But this is the first discovery of this awesome fact that here, here is a man. It's a man who, is, who has taken upon himself the consequences of all the evil of God's people. Surely he hath borne our griefs. Carried our sorrows. What does he say to Philip? Of whom speaketh the prophet? Of himself or of some other man? He knows this much, doesn't he? That it's a man, a real man, who's been suffering. He doesn't know any more than that at the moment because Philip hasn't started preaching yet. But he knows this much, doesn't he? That a real man is suffering unspeakable and terrible things. No wonder he's so gripped by what he's reading. No wonder the word is coming to life in his hands. And of course, Philip has that wonderful opening. And beginning at the same scripture, he preached unto him Jesus. And you notice this, he began at the same scripture. It must have been a bit of a long ride, I think. It, it wasn't a five-minute job, was it? It must have been quite a long ride because it, here he is, he's taken, he's taken the unit through the Scriptures. And the only Scriptures there were in those days was the Old Testament. And he's preaching to him nothing but Jesus. Christ in all the Scriptures. There is, there is as much of Christ in the Old Testament as in the New you know, and, and if you're blind to that, you're robbing yourself of, of so much light and comfort in the word of God. Jesus is here, as much here in Isaiah as he is in Matthew or Mark. He's here. And it should be a great nourishment and comfort to the Lord's people that we find him here. You read those servant songs and you see how intimately they describe the exercises of Christ in our nature. Especially chapter 50. Can't go into it now. Uh, but it's really so instructive and remarkable. Well then, just those few words by way of, way of introduction. 
which are, in a sense, a good introduction to our verse. When we read this, in all their affliction, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved him. Well, basically tonight, our agenda is so straightforward, uh, though profound, we hope, as well. First of all, we look at the secret fellowship of suffering. Because we learn that, that, that suffering, that godly suffering, is never solitary. That there's always a presence. There's always a presence there, even if it's unfelt. The secret fellowship of suffering. And then secondly, and I'll have to explain this better when we get to that point. Secondly, the saving face of God's Son. Because I believe the second person of the Trinity is referred to in this next clause, the angel of his presence. And the word presence means face. More of that when we get that far. So then that's basically our agenda tonight. Uh, on this weeknight, obviously weary with uh, perhaps the work of the day. We can't take too much on board. But just those two thoughts from the verse. The secret fellowship of suffering and the saving face of God's Son. First of all, the sufferings of God's people. Well, you know, they're legion, aren't they? Uh, you've only got to stay in the Old Testament and you can reach down and reach up handfuls of suffering amongst God's people. Now, friends, the sorrow of the world worketh death. And there's a meaningless terminal to it all. But the sufferings of God's people have meaning and purpose. Wherever you turn in the world, you see that, don't you? Look at the sufferings of Job. Were they futile? What, what, an, amazing, what an amazing issue there was to... Just his sufferings. Then you look at the sufferings of others and see how with the Lord's people every suffering is sanctified at the end of the day. It's there for their good. Their ultimate and eternal good. That's what we learn. Even from the Old Testament uh, that suffering, the Lord's people's suffering is good. Those sufferings may be sharp and they may be severe and they often seem to be solitary. But all of them are ultimately sanctified on account of a secret presence with them. Now, you know, if we were to go through all the word of God, we'd be here all night. And, you know, we mustn't try and get a quart into a pint pot because that won't work. That's a never-ending task. And so we've got to be very selective. Now, Gesenius, in his lexicon, highlights especially three places in the Old Testament where this word affliction in verse 9 uh, is especially applicable. And of course, we've got, we've got three cases to briefly look at. And, you know, it's not exhaustive at all because a man could stand here and preach 19 or 20 sermons on the, on the sanctified affliction of the people of God from many other places in the Old Testament. So, you know, this is just selective. Three places. The first place is Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1. So we're not going to leave the ladies out, though the other two 
We're almost, uh, well, uh, amen. But we have Hannah to start with in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Then we have the author of this, or certainly the author of the first song of degree in Psalm 120. And then thirdly, we have the case of Jonah and his rather singular affliction. Now, these are the three singled out by the lexicographer as being very suitable, suitably etymologically linked uh, to the word affliction here. First of all, Hannah. And it's a remarkable case, isn't it, Hannah? I mean, she starts one Samuel off, doesn't she, unwittingly, uh, this great catalogue of events that's going to bring King David to the throne and establish his kingdom in righteousness. And it starts off with the very private domestic misery of one woman. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Because... In a prayerless age, in Israel at that time, it was a great spiritual dearth. And and there was hardly any prayer going on. But here was a woman who really prayed. Do we know what it is to really pray? To really break our hearts before God? That's real prayer. And that does things. That makes things happen. Hannah's solitary prayer was the beginning of an avalanche of grace that would begin with the birth of of the promised son, Samuel, who would be the architect, eventually, of the kingdom of David. Isn't that amazing? It's an amazing thought, isn't it? But she's got a real problem. What's her problem? Now, you see, there there are lots of things about her life which which are comfortable, you might say. Well, you might say. I mean, all right, I know there were days of polygamy, and that's, that can never be really right. But she had a good husband. Well, a half-decent husband. He was good to her. He was kind to her. He was always, he was always thinking about her. He, he was always showering gifts on her. You know, he, he thought the world of her. And yet, friends, it wasn't good enough, was it? It wasn't good enough because she felt to be under the frown of God, under the ban of the Almighty, because the Lord had shut up her womb. And for a Hebrew woman in those days, it was tantamount to a curse. And what was worse was this, was that the other woman in the house never lost an opportunity to rub it in. And you know how it is when the the same bad thing keeps on happening incessantly. It wears you down. It gets you down. And especially on on times that should be happy when they were all going up to God's house uh, and to to join the presence of God. And here's this woman. She's still having a go. The needle's still going in. Well, you know what Hannah does. Uh, She comes into God's presence. And she breaks her heart before God. You know, broken hearts aren't a bad thing, are they? You see the wonderful issue of it. You know, but to start with, you see, she's so much on her own, isn't she? 
It's her personal problem and affliction. Elkanah's being nice to her, but it's not helping because, because he's not with her in it. He can't be with her in it. Nobody understands. Not even old Eli. Even old Eli thinks she's drunk. I mean, here's the predicament. It looks as if she's completely on her own. But of course she's not. The Lord is there. The Lord is with her. That's the amazing thought. That when people really pray, you know that God is there. You know he's there. And uh, here we have the case then of Hannah. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. Secondly, the case of the man that opens the great songs of degrees. Uh, You know the 15 steps, Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. And there were songs especially designed uh, for, uh, for praise and for fellowship as people went up together to the great assemblies in Jerusalem. That's why they were called songs of ascent, or degree as it has it in the AUV. You see, you went up to Zion. It was a a hill, it was a mountain. And in various stages you went up the hill. And at certain points you would have suitable items of praise. But the vital thing is this is that it's an upward way. The world's going downhill, isn't it? Every time you look at the world, it's going downhill. Whatever scientific advances there may be, the world is going downhill. But the people of God are going up. We're marching upward to Zion. What a thought that is. We're going up. But the first step is pretty low down, isn't it? The first step is below zero. Uh, in my distress, he says, I cried unto the Lord. Where is he? He's in a horrible place. But it's the first step on the ladder, or the first step of ascent up to the highest place. It may be below zero where we are, but from wherever we are, the way is up for the people of God. The Lord's presence is there. Even in Psalm 120, the Lord is there. That's the wonderful thought. Wherever we are, the Lord is there. The third case, the case of Jonah, and uh, it's best if we perhaps find our way to it. Um, there in the, in the scriptures. Jonah, there we are. Jonah chapter 2. Now Jonah's a bit of a hard nut to crack. Because we have a job to make out what his motives are. And, you know, various godly men have their different theories about why Jonah behaved in the way that he did. One very strong assumption is this. Is that Jonah knew that his God was a loving and merciful God. And God was very likely, very, because that was what he was like. And if Jonah didn't like this, that God was very likely to show mercy on the heathen when, when they heard the word of God and responded to it. 
And for complicated reasons we can't really go into now, Jonah didn't want the Ninevites converted. He didn't want them coming to God. Because he sensed that that would adversely affect uh, the, the fortunes of Israel. Okay? Uh, that, that we, we, we can assume that, that, that that's what he really felt about it. That was why Jonah, why Jonah sought to go in the other direction. Nineveh is that way, okay? And Jonah went in the opposite direction to Tarshish, across the Mediterranean Sea. Jonah thought that he was going to go out of the presence of God by what he did. It was really rather terrible what Jonah was trying to do. Do you remember what Paul said to the Romans? There's nothing wrong in what Paul said at all. Paul said to the Romans, I could wish myself accursed my brethren uh, which are Israelites that's how much he loved his nation oh what awful returns he got from them uh, but that's how much he loved them I could wish myself accursed for my brethren notice he didn't say I do wish myself accursed he didn't say that because he knew that would be very wrong uh, to wish a curse upon yourself he says, that's how I feel about it. Jonah did wish himself accursed. That's the awful, chilling, withering thing about what Jonah did. He, he thought that he would, yes, for the sake of Israel, that he would be cast off. That's how I view it. That's how I look at it. And of course, he set out with that in view. He says, right, I'm finished now, I'm lost. It, it, I don't get the wrong idea about Jonah. It wasn't, it wasn't racist in a nasty sense. It, it, it's not that he was particularly against other nations. Look, look, at, the, look, at, the, look at the polite and decent uh, sacrificial way he behaves with the sailors on the ship. They're, they're not Israelites. So it's not as if he's, he's, you know, he's, he's anti-other nations. It's just that he loves his own nation too much. When we love anything more than God, there's something wrong about that love. That was Jonah's problem. And so you take a look at Jonah there, don't you? And, and here he is. And it goes from bad to worse. And you eventually find Jonah. Where do you find him? You find him at the bottom of the sea, in the innards of a sea creature. And, and without getting too lurid about it, or too graphic about it, it was pretty awful, what you can imagine it. Because he says, out of the belly of hell, cried I. That's just not it, just that's not just in imagery or poetical language. That's where he felt to be, because he says, I brought myself there uh, uh, by my my folly, but by or, you know, my own will, I brought myself there. I'm under the curse, I'm out of God's presence. And I'm under under eternal judgment. Just think what it was like there in the innards of that sea creature for a minute. You don't need too much imagination, do you? It's complete darkness. You can't see a thing. It's noisy. Because where can the sound go to? All, all the internal organs of that creature beating and thrashing around you. 
we won't go into the smell. Because the smell was pretty awful. That's where Jonah felt himself to be. But then you come, you, you come to something rather remarkable. And, and, it, and it completely turns the whole adventure. Jonah says this, Lord, I am cast out of my soul. That's where I am. You know, that's where he felt to be. I'm sinking into hell. That's where I am. He wasn't. But that's where he felt he was. But now wait for it. What comes next? The scripture has it. Yet will I look again toward thy holy Can we put it like this in paraphrase? Jonah says, yes, I'm in, I'm in darkness, but I remember a time when I was in the holy city, I was in God's house, I was in that lovely place of his sanctuary, and I felt his love and glory there. It was a blessed time. He says, I'm going to have one more look, one more look, before the darkness takes over completely in my life. I'm going to have one more look at the Lord. You know, that's the first wise thing Jonah had done for months probably, to look again at the Lord, to look at him. You could do a lot worse tonight than look at Jesus again, to take another look at him. And you know what happened, don't you? Well, the next moment... The sea creature was violently ill and here was Jonah standing on the seashore. I didn't say any more to it than that, need I? But you see, the Lord was there all the time. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. The Lord was there all the time. But now we must hasten on. And we must hasten on in this particular way. Because we come to a, a, a specific problem here, don't we? And the specific problem is this, is that is that, strictly speaking, deity cannot suffer. Deity cannot suffer, strictly speaking. If we read, God is blessed forever. He's, he's above, as we started off tonight. He's above all, 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 the, all the problems of this world. They don't, in one sense, they don't affect him at all. Can, can the Almighty be affected by creation? And that's it. No. Otherwise, he ceases to be God. Otherwise, we reduce God to some pantheistic uh, uh, presence that, uh, that the heathens embrace. No, God is above everything and is not affected by this world in one sense. So then, in what sense does the Lord suffer? And has the Lord suffered, uh, uh, in a sense, even before the incarnation? Because it says so here, in all their affliction, he was afflicted. That brings us straight down to our last thought here tonight. And that is the next part of the verse, the saving face of God's Son. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. You know, you go through the Old Testament in any depth, and you can't get away from the fact that that God's eternal Son is there and he keeps on making his presence felt in one way or another. It comes out so clearly 
uh, and so tremendously. Uh, and, and, you know, that presence is especially expressed under the theophany, the angel of the presence. He's called the angel of the presence. You know, when Moses had the great task of having to lead the children of Israel uh, out of Egypt on, on their long pilgrimage to the land of promise, Moses said to the Lord, if thy presence go not with me, then carry us not up hence. Lord, I can't do this without you being with me. You've got to hold my hand. You've got to be there with me. Otherwise, I can't do it. And what did the Lord say to him? My presence shall go with thee. The Lord didn't say in a naked way, I will go with you, though of course the Lord was with him. But the Lord said, my presence shall go with thee. And that's the person that we're reading about here in Isaiah 63 verse 9. Uh, uh, the angel of his presence. The angel of his presence. Now then, our time is short, so we won't say too much more about it. But the thing is this, it is, it is the face. You know, it's a remarkable thought, isn't it? The face expresses everything, doesn't it? I mean, look at all the means of communication we've got nowadays. How multiplied they are. The different ways we've got of getting in touch with each other. Uh, you know, it's multiplied, doesn't it? But I don't think it's really improved our relationships any the better, has it? You know, I can see how, though, for example, the email is a wonderful invention. Uh, it, it, it has its abuses in that an email conversation begins between two parties and they quickly begin to misunderstand each other because they're not getting the whole picture. I've known people fall out in email conversations because they, they haven't got the point because they can't see each other. And once people get face to face, nine times out of ten, it sorts the problem out. That when you can read the face of your brother or sister, you know, it more often than not sorts the problem out. Because then you read each other properly. You're not getting a narrow, a narrow idea of each other, but you see the whole picture. How the face is expressive, isn't it? You know, friends, if you go, for example, to the, to the New Testament, uh, they're, they're not often turned to, are they, the last two letters uh, of John, uh, 2 and 3 John, the shortest books in the New Testament. But how do they end up? 2 John, how does it end up? Well, first of all, John is writing to probably, we think, the elect lady, which is a, a local church. Uh, not being dogmatic about that, but that's the way it sounds. And he says, having many things to write unto you, I would not write with paper and ink, but I trust to come unto you and speak face to face that our joy may be full. Face to face. He said, I could write reams, but I'd do far better than, than coming to see you. You know how it is when people, you get two people and they haven't, they haven't been together for months or years 
and there's a radio here. And they look into each other's faces. And they read their volumes. They don't happen to say any, anything much to each other. Because they read each other face to face. And you have that thought at the end of 3 John. Where he says to his friend Gaius, uh, I have many things to write, but I will not with ink and pen write unto thee, but I trust I shall shortly see thee, and we shall speak face to face. And that's what he's looking forward to. And the wonderful thought we've got here, I, I say we've got to curtail our thoughts here at this time, but, but this, this, is, this is his tremendous thought. Here is, here is the face. And the face, as it were, tells us so much. What must it be to look into the face of Jesus? To see there all your sins pardoned, but a face that's been pained beyond any description by your sins. To see there the love that he has to you, that incredible love unknown, that pity, that compassion, and that true fellow suffering, because here is one, surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He knows what your problem is. He's been there. And he's felt it far more than you ever will. What must it be to look into the face of Jesus Christ? What a blessed thing it is. Can there be any sight more wonderful? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Look upon him. Look upon him. Uh, you know, we've got to stop now, but it's amazing. Many years ago, I was at a minister's conference and a, a, a well-known minister uh, was leading uh, this particular session. And he was actually preaching. And, uh, and he kept on saying the same thing. N not in a deadening, dull way, but it, it, every time he said it, it, it came with greater power. Who knows, he said, what a fresh look at the cross might do for any one of us. Who knows? So look again. That's what Jonah did. He, he, was, a, he was in a terrible state. Far more of a pickle than any of us, I'm sure, are here tonight. What a terrible place he was in. And yet he looked again. And what bliss and mercy it brought him to look at the Lord, to look upon him, whom we have pierced, and to find nothing but love and sympathy and mercy so may we look upon him. May our eyes be turned upon Jesus. May God bless his word to us.